So I'm going to follow up a little bit on uh, uh, what we started last week online. And how many of you were online last week? Just Okay, idea. So I do have a couple of review slides for Richard. He forgets what I say from week to week. So he, he always tells me on breakfast Thursday, you're going to have your review slides, right? <laughs> no, that's not really true. It's not the topic of our discussion. Anyway, uh, I'm excited about, about finishing up this conversation about perichoresis. So, perichoresis. Remember the definition? Uh, here's a review of our points about the gospel. Why we're studying about changing our gospel language a little bit, or reconsidering it. God does not exist apart from the dynamic love relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. So let me ask you a question and be honest with me. Do you believe that? If you believe that, raise your hand. Praise God. Because a lot of people don't. A lot of believers don't. A lot of believers reserve a place for God to be disassociated from relationship, to be more focused on administrative issues or personality or, or uh, managing the heavens through stuff like that. So I absolutely believe that. I, I'm more convinced ever in my entire life that, that there is no God apart from the God that is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in paracritic union. So all that... God does, especially of redemption, flows directly from this relationship and the love that is a part of it. The choices he makes, the, the, even the, the redemptive strategy is, is a part of this. Coming to know God and not just know about him is salvation. And we, we do associate the telling of the gospel with salvation, and I think there's some appropriate connection there for sure. But we just need to remember that our goal when we're, we're sharing with people, is to help them know God. And that whatever ails you is fixed the more you get to know God. It's not a mechanical process. It's not really a legal process. It's just the real process of knowing who God is, who your Father is. Okay? And then lastly, the heart and the motive and the reach of the gospel is from this relationship. So this is why... You know, I spent too much of my life having the gospel compartmentalized into an area that didn't reflect these qualities. It was more of a legal situation, more of a judicial situation, more of a transactional situation. So that's why we're doing it. Here's some of the, the lines. We're going to go on from this tonight, but the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always been working together as one to reveal. That's a safe statement to make, I think. Now, it might be a little complicated, and we might be able to simplify it. I can, but... Uh, Father has never thought of you as anything but his child alive in Jesus, another son of his love. This is one that I could also ask for a show of hands. How close are we to actually believing this? Because I know it's easy personally to battle with feeling like I've let God down. Now, I don't ever feel convicted that I've let God down but I'm tempted to assign that situation to me. And uh, I, I really think this is the truth. I think we need to, to pursue confidence, receive confidence in what the Father thinks about us. Oh, uh, no, it probably shouldn't be, come think of it. <laughs> yeah, that would be talking about us. I wouldn't have. I, that's good. Good catch. I'll change that. You were created and are sustained in Jesus to know and love your Father God. Agreed? Agreed that we're sustained to know Him? That Jesus is actively working to continue to reveal? That's where it says there at the end of John 17, I have revealed your name and I will. And uh, a question like this could be appropriate. Can you feel Father's love touching you from within, not from without? Yes, yours. Okay, thank you. I need understanding, I need more clarification, understanding about this statement that uh, you were created and are, sustain, are sustained in Jesus to know and know your Father's love. Okay, so the sustaining part? Yes. Okay, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain that. We'll keep that for a second in case you have a follow-up question. Oh. So uh, one of the things that, that we're trying to challenge is the thought that we live independent lives 
and and that that independence. Hello, Olaf. That independence uh, is basically a manifestation of separation from God because of our sin, and that the the gospel is the answer to that separation. Now, I would say to you that that is not true. And the reason that the idea of you were created, because everybody pretty much thinks that God had a role in their creation, but you are currently being sustained as well, meaning that Jesus is working in and with you to know the Father's love, even if you don't recognize it or you don't acknowledge it. Uh, yeah, accompanied by anything that speaks of relationship. Ronnie said, would it be accompanied by? So the difference is believing that we're kind of independently lost creatures and that Jesus is out here and that he's done stuff for us, maybe even released the Holy Spirit to, to draw us to himself. But we're trying to kind of come into a recognition of and the understanding that right this minute, in everybody that we see, Jesus is working with them, in them, with them. Uh, there's, there's a couple key passages that talk about that. The Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh is one of them. But that, that uh, as we share the gospel and as we think about it, we can do so with the confidence that Jesus is more, is more involved in that person's life than just us presenting them a message. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So, and then, of course, this is, we're learning, you know, we're learning. So anyway, that's kind of that language. And then uh, the word perichoresis, it's a Greek word that speaks about this. So this is a definition from the class that I just recently took, or am still involved in. A term relating to the doctrine of the Trinity, often also referred to by the Latin term circumincessio, meaning a mutual indwelling of persons without loss of individual identity, as in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It also is applied to the, the, the human and the divine nature of Jesus, that the two are one, but they are still distinct. And there is aspects of the perichoretic idea that are, that are beginning theologically to be applied to us being in Christ. And so that's, that's kind of why it's a neat word. Uh, Trinity speaks of the three in oneness. Hello, Dave. Speaks of the three in oneness primarily. So when you're talking about the triune God, you're talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perichoresis, on the other hand, speaks to the nature of the relationship between those three and that one. So Trinity talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perichoresis talks about the identities of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in an interpenetrated oneness. Same in purpose, same in essence, but distinct. Meaning the Son is the Son, and the Father is the Father, and the Spirit is the Spirit. But there is a oneness there that is beyond what we're accustomed to. It's not beyond what we're used to seeing. In other words, uh, you know, we read stuff in the Scripture about us being all one in the body of Christ. And we have a hard time seeing that because we see each other distinctly as individuals. But there is a oneness there. Uh, same thing in marriage. Husband and wife are one. Uh, we see the, uh, families as one unit. So th there's a lot to this being made in the image of God, a lot to this concept of, of the perichoresis. But mutual indwelling of persons without the loss of individual identity. So there was a bunch of scriptures I went through. This is sort of the quintessential one from which the early church and the early church fathers wrestled to find a word and language to explain what Jesus meant. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And then he Followed that with, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Meaning, you can see the father by looking at Jesus. And if we extend this paracritic idea to, the, to uh, the fullness of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit, then that means that when you have the Holy Spirit inspiring you or comforting you or empowering you or gifting you, you are encountering the Father and the Son in that encounter. So there's a oneness there. So it's not a divided issue. Jesus also said, have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Then here's one. Uh, the track here is interesting. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And the word another is the Greek word alos. It means another of the same kind. 
So for instance, the, the meaning of that word is if you were driving a Toyota 4Runner, like yours, and we're all jealous, by the way. No, I don't know. Everybody is. I am. <laughs> Jason and I are. We love, yeah. Uh, if, you, uh, if you were driving, uh, and God forbid something happened, like somebody stole it or it got in a, a big collision or something like that, and the insurance company gave you another vehicle with this word, alos, you would get another forerunner, another white forerunner. Be the same. It's a replacement of the same thing or a continuation of the same thing. As opposed to if you, uh, yeah, I got, I got rid of my old Pinto and I got an, another car. Well, you wouldn't, with this word, have gotten another Pinto. <laughs> You'd have got an upgrade or something. So that's what this means. So this means of the same type. Could be a gremlin. And then Jesus says this, and this also speaks to the perichoretic idea that the, the early church fathers, the apostles, everybody was trying to understand. I will not leave you with orphans. I will come to you. He just said that he will give you another helper, but then I will come to you. So Jesus is, is weaving himself, or he's speaking with the limitations of earthly language, expressing the fullness of the interpenetration and the union that exists between he and the Holy Spirit and the Father. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And this is where we get included in this paracritic idea that I am in my Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. So the other thing, uh, Doris, that we're talking about in this concept that relates a little bit to the idea of Jesus sustaining us in the, in the, in the life that we live, uh, in the love of God, in the truth of the gospel, is that our, our being in Christ is more robust. It's more substantial than we usually give it credit for. Uh, I, I use the stupid illustration of being a part of one of those uh, class action lawsuits that a couple of lawyers and a couple of corporations are fighting it out back in New York. And we're sitting here in Colorado waiting to see whether we won or lost. And the only way we know is we get a note or a letter sent to us or an email. And then uh, we go, woohoo. And then it turns out that our portion of the settlement is $1.25 or something like that. That's how, that's how uh, I, I thought of being in Christ at some point. Now, obviously, I thought the benefit was better because I thought I was you know, going to be saved and, and escape hell and various things like that, which are all good uh, when given no other choice. But what we're really talking about is being woven together in Christ. And the reason the concept of perichoresis is kind of important, because remember, it's mutual interpenetration without losing your identity, is that we all know we still retain something of our own identity. You're still you, even though you're born again, even though you are in Christ. And that's not a weakness. That's how it is designed as it flows from the very nature and character of God. Because the Son is distinct from the Father, is distinct from the Spirit, but they are one in essence, they are one in purpose, they are one in every meaningful way, uh, and, and there's no other way to talk about them as being one. And so that means that that characteristic has original, belief, original being, ontological being. And so our ability to be in Christ... Uh, Alan's gone now, but he mentioned it while we were talking. Our ability to be in Christ is real. It's real because that's how the universe was set up because it came from the distinction and the space and the union and oneness that exist in the person of the Godhead. So even though it's foreign to our thought, and it took the... It took the early church a number of years to come up with a word to talk about it. Even though it's foreign to our thought, it's native to our creation. It's native to our natures. You're built to be one with Jesus. And Jesus even made that promise in John 14. Come on up here to the mic. Yeah, it's just for the courtesy for the people up there. Uh, but being made in that image opens the door for you to be you for eternity. Even though you're going to get a new name, even though all this kind of stuff's going to happen, you're going to be you, but you're going to be in God. Yes. 
Okay, so the closest way I can understand this is like, um, like you you can be a part of a group, but in their group you are individual persons. Yes, yes. That's and, the closest way I can understand. Okay, this so that's not a bad place to start. But the the okay. where to go from there okay. is to realize that there are aspects of you. Let's say your personality, your training, your psyche, and these are in, these are not perfect illustrations, but the nature of this group is such that you move to one purpose. You share goals completely. Not because you've lost yourself, but because you are one in purpose, one in thought, one in essence. So I've never been in the military, but I would imagine that there are some combat situations in military where training and camaraderie, and even emotions combine to make you one with your brothers and sisters. One unit. Yeah, one unit. One unit. And that's why we talk about unity as a manifestation of the oneness. Mm -hmm. Or that, do you not know, Paul says, that when you were baptized, you were united with Christ in his death. So when he died, you died. When he rose we rose. So that's what it is. Yeah. So take that, take that thing that's natural to us, the idea of being in a group of people in common, retaining your identity, but maybe we're all wearing the same sweatshirt, you know, like at a college game or something like that. That's good. Then just elevate that, elevate the similarity to the idea of purpose, intent, um, frames of reference, worldview, all that kind of stuff. Bring me to another example. It's like, like in a classroom, teachers say, you know, this group is going to study about the volcan- volcan- volcano. I'm going to pronounce okay, it correctly. Okay, yeah. I study this, so that's their purpose and the focus right. on the and group. That, and that purpose yeah. unites yeah. us. Only for us, those purposes are generally coming in from the outside. From God, they come out of the inside. Okay. They come out of the inside. Okay. And, and it's an important, that's a good question. It's an important point. And it takes time, you know, just like it took almost uh, 700 years for this word to be fully defined and embraced in Christian theology, it takes us a while to, to come up with this concept itself. Because every time I look, I see distinction. you know. But then I also recognize, well, no, there's union too. Did you join a team? You got it? No? Yes? No? Okay. All right. So this is the stuff that Jesus was saying. Uh, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you. Now, just back here, it says he will give you another helper, speaking about his father. So even in the normal course of Jesus explaining the life in the kingdom and the activities of God, in the normal course of that, the language had to be dealt with. So the father's going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send him. Oh, I'm going to come to you. (laughs) And so this is what the early church fathers... Uh, and, and the saints were wrestling with that came up with these languages. So Jesus here says, I will send. So do you see the commonality in their purpose there? It's the interactive nature that is speaking of this oneness while there's still distinction going on. One interesting thing to think about too is that Jesus was engaged in a physical life on earth while still being fully, hi you guys, while still being the word of the Father the eternal son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, while still being the one who made everything and through whom it was made and through whom sustains it all. So while Jesus was sitting, eating fish, he was also sustaining (laughs) creation. How did he do that? Pretty well. I don't think creation fell apart while he got a fishbone stuck in his throat. So it worked out. So in Jesus' prayer, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. That speaks of another thing that can help us Doris, think a little bit more about the, the magnitude, the depth, the intensity. I don't know the right words. Let's say the intensity, the reality of that union is that the things that are like defined by our independence, like Ronnie has a hoodie on, I've got a different shirt, Jason's got a jacket, uh, Jen's got a sweater, These are individual things, and mostly they're associated with our individual identities. But what Jesus is saying is here is that 
All that the Father has is mine. All that I have is the Father's. Uh, all the things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And he's speaking to the Father in this situation, John 17. And then it goes on down and says, I don't ask behalf of these alone, but also those who believe on me, that they may be uh, one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So I reflect back on John 14, 20, that in that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me and I'm in you. Here he's praying to the Father. So this is two times. One, he's declaring it to his disciples in John 14, and here he's stating it in his prayer to his Father. So I'm pretty sure this is true, even though it's hard to understand. Right? So what he's saying is that they may all be one, and then this is the standard of perichoresis, the standard of perichoretic oneness. That they, me and Dan, Tim and Richard, Greg and Dave, may be one by this standard, by this measurement, even as you and I, Father, are one. Now, I don't it doesn't bother me that you don't understand that and I don't understand it. Meaning that, oh yeah, we got that. <laughs> All right? But don't you think that it's stated plainly enough that since we know that faith allows us to apprehend the things that can't be seen or that we don't fully understand, like, for instance, that the world was made from nothing, right? Right? Isn't this one of the things that we should believe that the Holy Spirit is going to give us the faith to walk in, even if we can't articulate it fully or explain it? And so it drives me nuts when we don't even try. Go ahead. Yeah, just, I think I just clued into some of the extremeness of the unity of God. So one of the things you mentioned is, you know, it mentions the Father, then it says the Son did this. It does that a lot. There's a pattern of twos and threes where... Mm-hmm. You'll have the same verse, but it's one time it says the Father does this, another time it says the Son does this. You see it in creation. Creation was Elohim Mm -hmm. created. John 1 says Jesus created. Somewhere else, I can't remember where it says the Holy Spirit created. Mm -hmm. The unity part that kind of blows me away is when Jesus said, I am the creator, the Holy Spirit isn't going, whoa, 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 I was there too. Yeah, no, Don't there's no out. jealousy. Yeah. There's no. Je- it's kind of like, yeah, if you say you did it, cool, you did it. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's such a unity for you to say, I did this, mm-hmm. we agree. Now, see, the implication of that is that other areas that we feel like are sort of doctrinally endorsed, where they're at cross purposes with one another, we really have to examine again. Like penal substitutionary atonement, that you have the, the, you have the Father turning his back on Jesus, in spite of the fact that the Scripture says that God was in Christ, yeah, you know. Then what do you do with the Holy Spirit? I even asked one time, and I didn't know what I didn't understand the answer I got. Does the Holy Spirit is this a terrible time for the Holy Spirit having to choose sides? Oh my gosh, am I going to support Jesus in the struggle, or am I going to honor the Father in His wrath? You know. Yeah. It, it, it creates it creates non-paracretic thoughts, non-union. Thoughts. Yeah. There's another one is like praying for healing. I mean, I don't know how many times I've you pray for somebody to get healed, they get healed. And you talk to somebody who doesn't really believe in healing, and they're like, are you saying you healed them? Yeah. And it's like, well, it depends yeah. on what you mean by me. And that's the <laughs> way like, this, this idea of paracritic union begins yeah. to apply to us. And, and the tragedy of the way we've talked about the gospel is that the nature of God isn't part of the gift of the gospel yeah. in the way we talk about it normally. And the truth is, the nature of God is the gift of the gospel. It is what is being offered in Christ. Yes, sir, Dave. So there's a pa- there's a passage in Roman. I think that's Romans that speaks to what you're talking about. Okay, and it goes. Uh, it's Romans chapter eight, starting with verse nine. But you are not in the spirit. I mean, excuse me. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If if so, the spirit of God dwells in you. Now it said the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. But if any man does not have the spirit of Messiah, <laughs> yeah. he is not his. Yeah. If Messiah is in you, but it's the spirit that's in you. Right, right. Now he's saying Messiah is in you. Then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised up Messiah, Yeshua, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yeah, and isn't there another place that speaks specifically of God raising Jesus from the dead? Uh, so this isn't, just, this isn't just imprecise writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the part of the apostles. This is the language that humanity um, struggled with to, to, to speak of the beauty of this relationship and the beauty of the gift of the gospel. So anyway, I'm super, I'm super excited about, about it. All right. Okay, one more. I mean, yes. You can ask no, more than one. No, no, okay. I, I'm getting the sense that then um, the salvation work of Christ is to invite us to be part of that trinity. Am I correct? Uh, that, that meant that we were... In a, in a way, I would share that language with you as well. Or am I getting I, it wrong? Or I, I think that... So I think that... Maybe part of that I would trinity say this relationship. Way. Yes, okay. yes. So, so yes, but uh -huh. I would say it's even more fundamental than that. Okay. I would say that from the heart of the Trinity, from the beginning, we were created to, be a, to share that life. The, and that salvation, okay. because of all that went on with sin and all that's gone on with other thing, salvation is the, is the announcement of that. It's the demonstration of that on the cross. It's the pronouncement of that in the declaration of the gospel. It's the affirmation of that in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in our death with him. So I, I don't think it's, again, I don't think we're, we're, we're on the outside being invited in as much as we're being embraced and educated to what it means to be there. What it means to be there. And, and, and we can be in darkness and we can be uh, in a mess for sure. But yeah, so you're moving in the right direction for sure, I think, as far as Thank you. what I think or how I think he's trying to do this stuff. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, Jeremy, buddy. Just real quick, uh, you consider being on the side looking in or, or on the inside looking out, or is that different than we just are? I think it is. And, mm -hmm. and I think the R is, is a, um, it's a fundamental reality about our relationship in God, in Christ. I think that, that it's, we are in, first of all, we exist because we've been made. And we are in because he, he has facilitated that. Now, do we know that? And do we act like it? Do we experience it? Do we feel it? Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe yes, sometimes more than others, whatever. But I don't think that our experience of something is the reality of it. Usually that's not the case even in this life. Uh, you know, the fact that, that uh, I could get hungry and not eat doesn't mean that the hunger isn't designed to provoke eating and that there's not food there to nourish me. Through my forgetting to eat or choosing not to eat, I can deny the, the experience that food was designed to give and that my system was designed to receive from it. And I think that it's partly that. I think there's more going on in us to affirm and to relate and to engage from within this relationship with God. But we are distorted and blind. Uh, the fact that the Pharisees were standing in front of Jesus and questioning him and threatening him did not mean he was not the Son of God. It meant they didn't know it. So yeah. Now, and, and so were the Pharisees in the presence of God, which is something that they obviously wanted to be their entire lives, right? But they didn't recognize it, and therefore they didn't get the, they didn't get the experiential benefit of it in that moment. But, uh, but yeah, I think so. I think, I think and, and you know, uh, Jeremy, I think the thing that's easier for us to probably, the easier first step into that thought is, is God the way he is, whether we know it or not? And if we know that, then we can start applying what Jesus said, in that day you'll know I am my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Oh, okay, so there's a day coming for the disciples, Just and Jesus said this just prior to his arrest that night. So there was a day, literally day and time, coming for them where he pr promised that they would know this truth. 
that he was in them, they were in them, and, 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 he, and they were in him. And so, yes, I don't think that, I don't think the issue was that there wasn't that relationship. I think the issue was that the day that they knew it hadn't come yet. And that's why I think we're, I think we're carrying part of that message in the gospel. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the central things. Like, look, friend, um, our, our gospel person, I know something about you that you don't know. And it is that you were conceived by the Father before you were created as his child. And that Jesus is at work in and with you to know that. That's the part we put, that we, are, we were created by Jesus and are being sustained by Jesus to know the love of the Father. And I think we can have that confidence. And even if I'm wrong, I would much rather see us go into an evangelistic season assuming that and seeing what happens than assuming that everybody was uh, on the brink of, on the outside, on the brink of destruction and we had to somehow figure out how to pull them in. So, but I do think that, that what you're saying is true, Jeremy. I really do. Okay, so the history of perichoresis, the distinction and the oneness that is our God. I just want to make a quick point about this. There is a vast difference in believing and interacting and living with and in the knowledge of our God, who is three persons in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one, 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 in every way one can be, distinct, 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 in every uh, distinction that allows identity, than having a monolithic God, like you have in other religions. And we're going to see that in just a little bit. So, um, yeah, there's, there is a huge difference between between living in relationship with and believing in and experiencing um, all that can come in a relationship with a God who is one in purpose, indissolvable in purpose, one in essence, but distinct people in it, in that persons, not people, distinct persons, compared to a single monolithic God. And it, it has to do with all kinds of Precious things that we take for granted and then get confused by. So let's, let's look real quick. Okay, so now I'm just going to power through this. This is just for the uh, nerds among us that want to know. Uh, the first use of the noun perichoresis is attributed to a guy called Cyril of Alexandria. He lived from 376 to 444. If you're familiar with church history dates, you know that the early Creed and Athanasius, those guys were working in the late, uh, late 200s and early 300s. So this was a little bit later. And he's the first guy on record to use the noun perichoresis. Okay? Um, it didn't get very much traction uh, because he was not a very good politician in church council type stuff. So he, he uh, made his cases and he was impatient to do it, from what I understand, before the faction that supported him came. And so he was making a case for Trinitarian and a few other things like that with Jesus. And there was no support uh, in that council. And it, created a bunch of issues. The noun didn't actually find its way into Christian theology until about 730. And so that would be like, uh, you know, 300 years after that. Um, the person through whom that came was St. John of Damascus. He was a monk, a priest, a hymnographer, and a doctor in the church. And uh, in his work, he uh, entitled De Fide Orthodoxia, which was on the Orthodox faith, he is the one that's credited with the first formal theological use of perichoresis to mean the dynamic relationship of interpenetration but distinction in the Trinity. Now, that doesn't tell the whole story, though. If we're going to understand the concept, we're going to have to track back some. So uh, there's a bunch of stuff I'm not going to take the time to, to talk about tonight, but part of the word chorea is used in the New Testament. Perichorea is a verb and that term, perichoreo, was used by the Cappadocian fathers, uh, particularly Gregor Nazanzin. And I've got uh, an excerpt from one of his letters, which is fascinating. 
but that was around 340 or something along those lines when he was writing that, 350 maybe. Uh, he used the verbal variant, pericoreo, along with the idea of homoousia, which is another theological term that emerged a few hundred years after Christ. And that talks about the dual natures of Jesus. So he used that to talk about the nature, the two natures of Christ being one. He used it to talk about us being united with Christ in his death and resurrection being one. But uh, then it began to inform his theology about Trinitarian writing. So I want to read this. It's a little bit long, but it's fun. So this is Gregory Nazianzen. Uh, it's called uh, The Letter or the Epistle 101 uh, to Cleodinus the Presbyter. And it's about a, uh, a battle going on between um, Gregory and Gregory is, is noted, or in history, he's called Gregory the Theologian. He's a pretty neat guy. I did a little studying on him. And this, this dude, uh, leader of a sect called Apollinarius. Okay? So, but since puffed up by their theory of the Trinity. Now, I want you guys to apply this if it applies to today. All right? Because all of us know that a lot of different folks have a lot of different opinions and notions about God. I'm not trying to be super critical about it. I've had some goofy ones and some good ones. But this is not something brand new. This was happening back in 300 AD. Okay? But since puffed up by their theory of the Trinity, they falsely accuse us of being unsound in the faith and entice the multitude. It is necessary. So, back in the 300s, when people had different opinions about theology, they also had the human liberty of criticizing one another and going, you're a heretic, you're a man. No, whatever. All right, so, but since puffed up by their theory of the Trinity, they falsely accuse us of being unsound in the faith and entice the multitude. It is necessary that people should know that Apollinarius, while granting the name of Godhead to Holy Ghost, did not preserve the power of the Godhead. So just saying oh yeah, I believe in the Trinity, or I believe in, in, in uh, that Jesus is God, or whatever. That, that's not enough. That doesn't, that doesn't fulfill what we're talking about. Uh, did not preserve the power of the Godhead. For to make the Trinity consist of great, greater, and greatest, as of light, ray, and sun, the Spirit and the Son and the Father, as clearly stated in his, Apollinarius' writings. It's a ladder of the Godhead, not leading to heaven, but down from heaven. That was Gregory's criticism. So now, here's, here's, what, if, if, uh, here's what I think that he's saying. Apollinarius, while calling the Holy Spirit God, acknowledging the Trinity nature of God, saw it as a form of modalism, where there's a hierarchy, and when you're dealing with one element of that hierarchy, the Father, you're dealing at the highest level, then you're dealing at the next level, then you're dealing at the next level. Now, it's very easy to slip into that thinking ourselves. And people are still teaching that hierarchical relationship. You're right. Um, but here's what he's contrasting that, that he believes. And this is why, even though he didn't use the word perichoresis, he is speaking perichoresis. But we recognize God the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and these not as bare titles, dividing inequalities of rank and power, but as there is one and the same title, so there is one nature and one substance in the Godhead. So while I'm standing here trying to explain to you this Greek word that was adopted by the early church fathers 700 years in, talking about how God is one in purpose, one in nature, one in, it's not original to me, it's not any of my brilliance. This is what the church struggled to. Now, some would say, well, wow. You mean this isn't even like a biblical word or anything? Okay, don't freak out over that. Because words don't make reality. Words define reality. They describe reality. They shed light on reality. That's why poets can use words and scientists can use words. That's why kidnappers can use words and grandpas can use words. Because words, if they, they describe, they define, they point to. So, let me ask you a question. 
What is more likely for it to take a few hundred years for an utterly transcendent, revolutionary reality that has just been revealed in a way that is super difficult to understand? You mean that guy that walked along in sandals and a robe was manifesting the eternal Godhead in our midst. The bigger the idea, the harder it is to find the word for it. The bigger the idea, that's why if you read like scientific language or medical language or journal language, there's a lot of big words in there. And they're not big just so that eggheads can make them big. They're big because they take the place of a whole paragraph of description. Right? Like... uh, somebody's got to know some medical word that's just a weird short word, you know, like maybe 15 letters long that describes something. If you didn't use that word, you'd have to say, okay, well, that means that your lungs are doing this and your blood's doing this and da, 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 da. The most radical, the biggest, the most enlightening reality ever to be revealed on the earth was revealed in Jesus and he said, I and the Father are one. Oh, the Father's going to send you a comforter. I'm going to come. Oh, I'm going to send you that comforter. You know, so it took time to nail this down. Now, we don't have to start using perichoresis as a Greek word in our language, but the concept that perichoresis has enlightened, the concept, the reality that it has shined light on and put some boundaries around and, and given us some concept for Oh, you mean, the, you, you mean that the Father and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just united in perfect harmony, in perfect person, in perfect essence. There's nothing that divides them. And, and the only thing that, that uh, well, there's nothing that divides them. But you mean they also retain a distinct identity? Yes, that's what perichoresis means. And that's what's happening. The Father remained the Father because Jesus went out and prayed to him. But the Father was there for you to see when you looked at Jesus breaking the loaves and the fishes. Right? Or hanging on the cross. So don't, don't freak out that, it's, that the word didn't just happen instantaneously. People were talking about it. It used a lot of language. But perichoresis talks about that stuff that Jesus was talking about. There's really a lot of language that's like that. Israel struggled for a lot of time trying to describe God, trying to describe him as all that he thought. And they borrowed language from other cultures, and then it got refined, and then you'd have watershed moments like where uh, God ended up getting a new name by Abraham through his encounter with Isaac. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. We think that that's just always been. and We think it just applies to, I need a new car, so Jehovah Jireh. No. That came into the lexicon of the Hebrew language and experience as Abraham was preparing to sacrifice the son of promise. And God said, no, look there. And the ram was caught in the thicket. And Abraham walked away from that experience and goes, God provides. This is how it happens. And this is why it's okay for us to learn it and why it's okay to not feel ashamed that we didn't already know it but we probably should pay attention if what we're seeing and hearing being illuminated is true. Okay, um, we're almost almost there. Uh, no, that was from uh, about 370, it's 4th century. Yeah, about 470, 4th century. Yeah, so they were battling this stuff out. And the same stuff, people pointing at you saying, oh, you're a heretic because you think this or you think that or, you, you know, whatever. Who cares? Okay, so here's Hugh's history. The concept, so now it goes back to Gregory Nazian, that's where he, when he lived, uh, Jason, 329 to 390. He used the verbal variants and so on. And now we're moving up to an example. There's, I could have created hundreds of them, and I prepared just for that class, so these guys kind of knew who I was referring to. This is Karl Barth. 
Karl Barth was a theologian back in the 60s and 50s, 40s, something like that, 40s, I think. I'm not exactly sure. Um, when was, remember? Yeah, yeah, so it must have been like, like uh, late 60s. Oh, 30s and 40s. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, well, anyway, in Church Dog Mags, Volume 1, he rightly regards perichoresis as the one important form of the dialectic, is a quote, required to complete the concept of three-in-oneness from the side of unity of the divine essence and from the side of original relations. So close your eyes for a second, because I put too many highlight colors up there. It's confusing. Let me just read it to you. The one, perichoresis is the one important form of the dialectic required to complete the concept of three-in-oneness from the side of unity of the divine essence and from the side of original relationships. Now, I had no idea what the word dialectic mean, meant when I read that, so I looked it up, and dialectic is the art of investigating or discussing the truth of opinions. Now, something that's news to the church in the West is that there is such a legitimate thing as discussing the truth of opinions. <laughs> because most everybody thinks that you're just supposed to find somebody that knows the correct opinion, let them tell it to you, and then you believe it. But no, heaven forbid, it's okay to apply your head and your heart and your spirit and your fellowship and your faith to kick around these options like we do. Thank God at Joyland. All right, so there's, there's three things here. There's the concept of three in oneness. There's the side of the unity of the divine essence, and there's the side of original relations. So here's what that, the importance of that. Point one is the idea of three-in-oneness, perichoresis. Remember, three-in-oneness, Trinity, is talking about the three-in-one nature of God. Perichoresis is talking about the dynamics of the relationship of that three-in-one. So perichoresis is important because it helps complete the concept of three-in-one in our minds in ways that lesser analogies don't do. And here's an example. How many of you ever heard somebody try to describe the Trinity as ice, liquid, and gas? Okay. Now, I'm not picking on that. I've used that illustration. Uh, the egg, yolk, the white, and the shell. Nobody knows what the egg white's called. It's called albumin or something like that, but nevertheless. Uh, okay, so the problem... With, with an illustration like this, think back to that quote from Gregory Nazianzen. Apollonius said, oh, okay, so here's how to understand that these three are God. You have greater, great, and greatest. Or great, greater, and greatest. And so it's like, it's like the rays of the sun. And it's like the light that that ray produces and the warmth you feel from that one. Well, I, you know, kudos for trying to explain this enormous mystery. But that isn't the truth. That, that, that makes it a modal thing. It makes a hierarchical thing. This thing, what people don't understand and why this kind of a illustration, the ice, the liquid, and the gas, is so destructive compared to digging in and thinking about interpenetration and, and oneness, the distinction, is because this means that God changes based on external pressure. Because the water doesn't change itself, it has to be acted on by temperature. And when the temperature is below freezing, it looks one way. And when the temperature is, is room temperature, it looks and acts like liquid. And when it gets hot, real hot, it turns into gas. Now, this is overly simple, but if you'll think about it a little bit, there are a lot of people that teach that God changes based on external forces, like whether or not you believe, whether or not you pray, whether or not you act a certain way. That at one moment, he'll be just your creator, but then when you make a prayer, he's going to become your father. God's not like water. He's not malleable like that. He is who he is. But who he is allows for distinction. And it's not forced by the outside pressure of circumstances. 
Your and my belief does not change God. Your and my belief unites us with the God who is. Adam's fall did not create the necessity for the incarnation of Christ. And I don't have time to prove that tonight. <laughs> but a lot of people think that. A lot of people think that Jesus' coming is, is uh, plan B because plan A got screwed up. Now, that plan A was the one that was conceived of by God, right? The God who spoke everything into existence, the God who's sovereign, the God who is the maker and sustainer of all. He created plan A, but Adam and Eve botched it, so then there was a scramble for plan B. We have to stop thinking that way, and part of the way to stop thinking that way is with this kind of stuff. Go ahead and dig into the reality. Face the, the, the necessity of faith and humility to embrace who God is. It's worth, it's worth the journey. It's worth the effort. Because then all of a sudden, when you screw up tomorrow afternoon and fail to do something you should have done or do something you shouldn't have done, you're not going to be tempted to think that God's essential nature toward you is going to change. Because it isn't. Does that make sense? So that's the first point I got out of that. Second point is when we think about this perichoresis, interpenetration, and distinction with the unity of the divine essence, it's seen through the rich lens of perichoresis, we can conceive of real and eternal individual distinction, not only in God, but in us and in the world around us without sacrificing true oneness. The casualty, if you don't think this way, is that we have a tendency to think of union or oneness as similarity or sameness. Okay? And there's just a couple little thoughts I had. Uh, if we get perichoresis right, if we understand that, 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 that the oneness of God in the persons of the Trinity still allows for the distinction of them, then we're not tempted to try to say, I know that you can be a Christian because you're a lot like me. I'm not demanding sameness for us to have union. It's really a huge point. Because unfortunately in our culture where church is somewhat of a consumer product, one of the strategies is to call and get people that like what you like, like the music you like, like to dress what you like, like to have the skirt length that you think everybody ought to have. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But, but this, is, this will help us get beyond that and see that, wow, there is distinction among us. And that's okay. The other is that we don't drift into a pantheism. And what I mean by a pantheism is uh, that we essentially lose ourselves in God or in heaven. We are, uh, yeah, resistance is futile, is the board. Now, nobody in here would say they're a pantheist. But all of us are subject to thinking pantheistic thoughts, having pantheistic images, where uh, heaven is just kind of this place where we're all going to be homogenized together. No, you're going to be known as you're known. And a correct view of perichoresis is going to help that. And then lastly, uh, when Trinity is viewed through the lens of perichoresis from the side of original relations, remember he said there were three things, the three in oneness, the uh, distinctions in the Trinity, and the union of essence and the original relations. It means that it opens the door for a vast number of things for us to be able to engage in and be really important. I'm running out of time. Uh, these include things like love, honor, communication, creativity, family, community, society, and our basic understanding and interaction with morality, goodness, and holiness. All right, so let me, I got to speed. So, not only does perichoresis, if we understand it properly, mutual interpenetration, but distinction, not only does it give it a, a better foundation, uh, a conceptual foundation of who God is, it literally reveals an eternal dynamic space in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fact that there is a real distinction and a real union means that the concept of being in God is real. There's room for you and me and our neighbor in him between 
the interaction that's there. That's one of the beautiful things. So this is where it goes about the idea of original relationship. There is a space into which we can be included without a loss of our individual identity. You will be known by name. Now, he may give us a new name on a white stone, but you're still an individual. You're never just going to be absorbed into the ether. You may stand before the Father, and he may not have a bodily form. I've read uh, this one fictional book where it was so beautiful. The light of his countenance filled this place, and his heartbeat filled the pressure and the sound. And yet everybody in there was interacting with him individually. And then they would turn to their neighbor. It was just a beautiful bit of fiction. But this is what's possible with perichoresis. Okay? And the second point, which is really huge to me, and I'm going to close with it, is this eternal dynamic space in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is where comes all so many of our common experiences. Where, the reason they're real. Let me show you. I already remember, I said remember, communication, relationship, love. Each one of these things, think about them. Each one of these things is, 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 is a manifestation of union. It begs union. But it requires individuals. You cannot have a community without individuals. You cannot have a family without individuals. You cannot experience love without individuals. Okay? All right, so this is the challenging statement, and I'll wrap. Question one, what is the basis of relational reality? We only really have two choices. Because it's going to come from God, right? Relational reality is going to, it's a gift to creation from God. And so it's going to come from one of two fundamental places. Because I am, or because I said. Now don't dismiss the significance of this. Because... Most of us grew up in a church that said, truth is what God says. But truth is what God is. Who God is. What's the difference? Um, Yeah, we might have to do that one of the day. I'll show you in just a second. Okay, think about this. The first is eternal in its origin. The second, by definition, is not. God called Abraham, right? Before God called Abraham, had Abraham been called? No. So there's a point in time when the things that God says come into being. Now, I'm not diminishing the value of what God says, but what I'm saying is, who, because I am is, the, is the, in, the, the, the unresolvable, undilutable reality of what's there. How about this one? The first, because I am, is eternally consistent with the ontological nature of reality. In other words, the reason that we can be identified as a group here, but also be distinct individuals, is because of the union and the distinction in God. It comes out of Him. The reason there's a concept where you can be in Christ is because Christ is in His Father. And He said, in that day you'll know. Okay? The second, think about this, and I know this is freaky. The second may or may not be consistent tomorrow. Because there are a number of reasons that God, and I put the solo God, but it just could be God, period, may say something new tomorrow. Like, for instance, he declared a whole bunch of sacrifices. And that declaration gave them power and authority. But later, through the prophets, he said, I never desired sacrifices. We have to wrestle with that. You know, in one time, he, 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 uh, Jesus said, I'm not going to go up to the temple. It's not my time. And then he went up to the temple. His behavior was 100% consistent with his nature. 
But time played on the words. It wasn't being deceptive. It's just different. And so this is a huge deal. What is your reality based on? Who God is? Or only on what he says? And we have to expand this more because I'm not trying to make you insecure about the things that God declares in the Scripture. Apply this specifically to morality or holiness or something like that. Particularly think about holiness or even morality. Is morality good or bad? A particular morality. How do we know? Well, some would say because of what's said. I would say, no, morality finds its root in who God is. If we know through perichoresis that morality, let's say virtue or holiness or goodness, literally comes historically and eternally out of the reality that's exchanged in God between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, for instance, my favorite definition of holiness is one that Baxter Kruger uses. He said, holiness is how the Father and Son think of one another, treat one another, and honor one another. The alternative to that is holiness is a list. Which list? Is it the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? Or is it the 640 other laws? Or is it the 1,300 declarations of how you ought to be in the New Testament? We have to wrestle with this. Or is holiness the living manifestation of the way the Father and the Son and the Spirit interact with one another dynamically. So perichoresis opens the door for a lot of other study, a lot of other thought. Okay? No, can't ask questions. <laughs> Time for worship. Kids are out, ready to go. Laurel's ready. Bless you guys. We'll spend another week on this for sure because I can't drop a bomb like that on you and not let us work through it. Thank you.